Well, if you have a Bible, if you turn to Daniel, the book of Daniel. So last week we looked at the life of Noah and talked about that he was an example of a saint that walked with God in a godless world. And considering the times we're living in, I'd like to continue that theme by looking at another Old Testament saint that also had to be willing to stand alone in a hostile environment, and that's Daniel, which is where we're turning to his book. And so I just believe this is an important message for us today. So if you would turn to Daniel 6, Daniel chapter 6, and actually we'll begin reading in chapter 5. We're going to go two verses back into chapter 5. We'll pick it up in chapter 5, verse 30. And it says, And that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain, and Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. He was 62. And it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. And over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. And then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counselors, the captains, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for thirty days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He kneeled down upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And then they came near and spake before the king concerning the king's decree. Hast thou not signed a decree that every man that shall ask a petition of any god or man within thirty days, save of thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, Well, the thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. And then answered they and said before the king, Well, that Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah, he regards not thee, O king, nor the decree that thou hast signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. And then these men assembled unto the king and said unto the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and Persians is that no decree nor statutes which the king established may be changed. And then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. 
And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. And then the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. And then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste unto the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? And then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and has shut the lion's mouth that they have not hurt me, for as much as before him innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. And then was the king exceeding glad for him, and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him, because he believed in his God. And the king commanded, and they brought those men which had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives, and the lions had the mastery of them and break all their bones in pieces or ever they came at the bottom of the den. And then King Darius wrote unto all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever in his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall be even unto the end. And he delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and in earth and has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. And so this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. You know, sometimes you read that account in Daniel six. And it almost seems like a fairy tale, doesn't it? Because, you know, from the oldest to the youngest, everyone in here, everybody knows the account of Daniel in the lion's den. I mean, it's in every children's Bible books. They make cartoons out of it. But what we need to remember is when we're reading that, you got to get all that out of your mind. This is real history because <laughs> there is a real man, Daniel, that lived. There were real lions that ate these people that tried to put him in that den and get killed. Real lions. And it was a real hostile environment that he was involved with at that time. And so Daniel, in this time, in chapter 6, at this point, he is in his 80s. He's an old man. When he came in chapter 1, he was about 13 to 15 years old. But he has faithfully, this is an amazing thing to me, faithfully served God in a foreign land for 70 years. And he's outlived two other kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. And now we just read in chapter 6, verse 1, Darius the Mede has come and he's conquered Babylon and the Persian Empire is going to rule the world. But the king that was before, the king we just were reading about here in chapter 6, Belshazzar, he was corrupt and a debauched king. So he's drinking wine. If you remember in chapter 5, he takes the wine from the temple and with his wives, and he has this big party of a thousand people, and he says, let's just bring those, those consecrated gold and silver cups from the temple, and let's drink our wine out of those. And he basically mocks God. And because of that, God judges him. And he says this, meeny, meeny, tekel you farsim, was what was said. 
and translated, that was God has numbered thy kingdom and finished it, and you are weighed in the balances, and you are found wanting. So he didn't give God glory, lifted himself up against the Lord, and the kingdom goes to Darius as a result of that, right? But the corruption, it seems, followed. And so when you look at verses 1 and 2, it says, It pleased Darius, the new king, to set over the kingdom 120 princes which should be over the whole kingdom, and over these three presidents whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts unto them. And it says that the king should not be damaged. So he basically placed these 120 princes over his kingdom primarily to collect taxes. But apparently he can't trust them because corruption, it's embedded in the government. I mean, that's kind of like nothing new, is it? I mean, we have the same problem here in Kentucky. Kentucky is known as one of the more corrupt governments there is that contractors and officials, they'll line their pockets with public money and kickbacks. So it's gone on for time immoral, right? And Darius has this same problem. So what he does to solve it is he says, I'm going to appoint three presidents over these princes so that they can be accountable for the finances they collect. And Daniel is named the chief of the three. But here's the thing. He is a godly man in his 80s, and he has absolute firm integrity about himself. And look what it says in verse 3. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes. Why? Because it says, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. And so that's the context we have for the rest of this chapter. We have Daniel, who is a godly man, who is said to be of an excellent spirit, and he is living and working in the midst of evil, corrupt men that are seeking to destroy him. That's what they want to do. That's what this story is all about. Yet, he overcomes them all. And he not only overcomes them, but think about the end of what we read. We'll look at it here in a minute. He's a major influence. He not only overcomes his enemies, but he becomes a major influence on the king that is ruling the then known world, his entire kingdom, and really, literally, the entire earth. So look what it says there again. So the king, after Daniel gets delivered out of that lion's den, he decides he's going to send a postcard to everybody. And he sends it here beginning in verse 25, but look at who all is influenced. It says, King Darius wrote unto all people, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied unto you. And he says, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, and here he glorifies the God of Daniel, the God of the Bible. <laughs> he says, he is the living God. Men should fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, steadfast forever in his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and in earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. And so this Daniel, who they tried to destroy, it says at the end, he prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So listen, the world came to know about the God of Daniel. How? Through the life of Daniel. And that's the way it's going to work for us. We are the avenue that God is going to make known himself and his ways to this world. And so what was Daniel's secret? How was he able to do that? How was he able to get that king to write that decree at the end? Magnifying 
his God for what he was. So I think we need to find that out and put it into practice ourselves. So there's several principles here I think we can see. And verse 3 tells us the first principle of his secret. And it says there, because an excellent spirit was in him. That's why they're jealous of him. Because he had an excellent spirit. Or it could be translated, he had an extraordinary spirit. And why did he have that? Was it something inherent in him? It was a work of the Holy Spirit within him, right, in his life. And because of that, he stood apart from all other men. So he had a different spirit about him, and it was evident to everybody that he had this excellent spirit. And so when you read the previous chapters, what is this excellent spirit? When you read the previous chapters, you know that God, by his spirit, gave him wisdom and knowledge in school of all places, in the Babylonian college. Some of the kids in here are like, man, I hate school. I just want to get by. But hey, God can anoint you to make you the best student there and to stand above the others. That's what he did for Daniel. Supernaturally. Said he and the three Hebrew children excelled all other children because the Bible says God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. And we also know through those first five chapters that God also gave him understanding in visions and dreams. And because of that, Nebuchadnezzar says when he could understand the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had and none of his wise men could, Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to elevate you up to the top because there's something different about you. You have an excellent spirit. And another way his excellent spirit was manifested is he was a man of integrity. An honest man, Daniel was. A loyal man. A man that was fair and kind and just. So look what it says about him in verse 4. It says, Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault for as much as he was faithful. Neither was there any error or fault found in him. A faithful man, no error or fault at all, no negligence or corruption was found in this man, Daniel. He was, as the New Testament would say, above reproach. That's how Daniel was, above reproach. That excellent spirit he had, that extraordinary spirit and the abilities combined with his nationality, that was a problem too. It produced a resentment in these other princes and made him vulnerable. Look what they say down in verse 13. When they come before the king, it says, And they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah, regards not thee, O king, nor the decree that thou hast signed, but makes his petition three times a day. I mean, you can just hear the disdain they're saying that with, right? They're saying that Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity, they don't like him because he's a Jew. And so the presidents and princes of Persia, rulers of this mighty nation, they're the rulers. And they probably had blue blood in them, as they say. You know, they were made to be rulers. They despise the fact, and I'm sure Daniel was a little guy because all my Jewish relatives are little for the most part, right? So they despise the fact this little spiritual man from some small backwater nation, he's going to be set over this entire kingdom. They resent that. They're jealous of that. And so he wasn't one of them, not only in nationality, but even more importantly, he had a different morality and nature. 
He was different than all of them. And they were all a bunch of crooks. And he's going to keep them in line and expose them. That's what he's going to do. And listen, the point we want to see from this is a person with an excellent spirit that is serving God, when a righteous person exposes unrighteous people, guess what they want to do? They want to destroy you. They do. So Jesus, in the New Testament, he confronted some crooks just like Daniel did. In Luke 16, he says this, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He says, You cannot serve God and mammon. And guess who he was telling that to? The Pharisees. They weren't happy about that. And it says, And the Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things. And it says they derided him. Which derided means they're all like turning their nose up at him. Who does this guy think he is? Kind of like what they're saying about Daniel. Who does Daniel think he is to come in here and take over? Tell us what to do. Going to make us accountable. And that's what Jesus is doing. Because a few chapters later, Jesus cast the money changers out of the temple. And he tells them this. He says, it is written, my house is the house of prayer. He says, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the next thing we read, listen to this. It says, the chief priest and scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him. Isn't that what we have here? So what's the issue with Daniel and Jesus? So when greedy men want to take advantage of situations, they're standing in their way. They're standing in their way in their righteousness, exposing their greed and hypocrisy and so they're going to find any excuse they can. Isn't that what the Pharisees did? They were constantly looking for a way to trip up Jesus. And that's what these men are doing here. They're trying to find some kind of fault with Daniel that they can topple him from being on the top of the government. They probably did three background checks on him. But what is it? We have Daniel is faithful and faultless. I mean, what a testimony he had. And look at the environment he's in. And so the question we have to say is, can we say that about us? That what we claim to be faithful followers of the Lord Jesus, Christians, saints, is what we claim to be what we are if somebody would investigate you? And that's the way it was for Daniel. What a testimony. So anytime you have righteousness coming against unrighteousness and it's being exposed, you're going to get a reaction. That's what's going to happen. You know, John the Baptist told Herod, what did he say? He said, it's unlawful you to marry your brother's wife. And after he did that, Herod and his wife both wanted to destroy John, didn't they? Because he exposed their sin. And he's standing there as a prophet exposing their sin. They want to destroy him. And at least it said Herod feared John, but his wife, she didn't fear God or man, right? And next thing you know, John the Baptist's head is on a platter being served up. And so that's just a principle of the Bible. It's all through the Bible. We could give a whole lot of other examples. And so do we not think coming into these last days as persecution increases, we're not going to face the same thing? If we're living a godly life with an excellent spirit like Daniel in this hostile environment, we will. And we're going to have to make some tough choices just like Daniel did. Are we going to stand or are we going to compromise and give in to the pressures of society so that we can keep our house, keep our job? Keep the peace. Because listen, here's what it says in 2 Timothy 3. It says, In the last days, perilous times shall come. 
And it goes on to say that men will be despisers of those that are good. And isn't that what we're talking about here? They didn't despise Daniel because they found any fault with him. He hadn't done anything wrong. He was a faithful president to the king, but yet they're out to do him in. Despisers of those that are good. And I think we're going to have to deal with that. So listen, if you're God's child and walking in the spirit, we know that God will bless everything you do. That's Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. And it goes on to say, he shall be like a tree. We sang this song today. Planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. So hear it. That's part of our testimony. Daniel was the best worker they had in that country, in that Persian empire. He was a faithful worker, a diligent worker. And when we are having the Spirit of God work through us with that excellent spirit, that will be us. We'll be the best workers out there, the best housewives out there. We'll be somebody that shows up on time, somebody that has a good attitude, doesn't complain, works hard, have good solutions to problems. God will give you wisdom to do that. And you know what I don't, what I'll do? I'm saying, I tell my kids all the time, you know, they talk about they work at this place and that place and nobody works hard at all. They get all the hours they want because nobody wants to work and they're lazy and don't do a good job. I say, I'll tell you what, you just do a good job, you show up, act like a Christian, and you'll always have work. But that's where our testimony's at, isn't it? It should be that way. And that is the testimony of Daniel, and it should be the testimony of every Christian in this room. That they should say, hey, there's something different about this person that works here. They're of an excellent spirit. You know, Stalin, Joseph Stalin in World War II, he was a mean guy, and he didn't particularly like Christians. But for some reason during that war, he started relaxing the rules and regulations against Christians. And everybody's wondering why. Why did he do that? And here's the reason why, because he had people under him that were spies, and they infiltrated all of that society so he could know what was going on, and they'd send back reports. And the reports they sent back were unanimous. This is during the war. They need to get things manufactured. They need good workers. And here was the unanimous report. The best, the most reliable, the most conscientious workers in the factories were the despised Christians. So Stalin was a heathen, but he knew a good thing when he saw it. So he says, all right, I'm going to relax these regulations and rules I have on these Christians and allow them freedom to worship, so they'll give me some good war material. But what a testimony. Right? That's the way it should be, amen? That's the way it should be for us. Like I say, the world should look at Christians and say there is something different about them. Like we talked about last week, they don't murmur and argue like everyone else. They're blameless and harmless. The sons of God without rebuke, it says in Philippians, shining as lights in a crooked and perverse nation. That's how Daniel was. By the grace of God, that is how we'll be in these end times that are coming up. But when you live that way, like we've talked about, you have to know that people are going to be looking to hang you. They're going to be watching your every step looking for a fault. Because there's a different spirit that's operating in the people of the world and us. And I almost think they can somehow sense it. 
or the devil in him promotes it, however you want to look at it. But if you would, put something in Daniel and turn back to John 15. John 15. And look what it says here. John 15, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus says this, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they've kept my sayings, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. And look what he says in verse 22. He says, if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not sinned. He says, but now they have no cloak for their sins. And so when we live a godly life, when somebody at your work is trying to get you to do something unethical or something that's not right or tells an off-color joke and you don't laugh at it, guess what you're doing? You're taking off that cloak for their sin when you do that. And Jesus says, they hate me for that. And so they're going to hate us for that. And they should. That's just part of being a Christian. So when we experience the favor of God and do what's right and others don't and they're convicted by that, we need to be prepared they're going to be looking for ways to get back at us. That's the way it's going to be. So the rulers, they want to find a way. They can't find it in his character. He's a man of integrity. And they want to find a way to snare Daniel. They come up with something that is close to his heart. Daniel 6, 5. They catch him in the one thing that they know meant the most to him. And you know what that was? His faith. Look in verse 5. It says this, it said, and then said these men, we can't find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. And that is the one area they could exploit in this man, Daniel. And that was to get him in trouble concerning his devotion to God. And that was manifested how? In his prayer life. Ah, we'll talk about that. This prayer life, that was the center of his life. The controlling activity of his being was communion with God. That's what made him have that excellent spirit. So what do these officials do? They say, I think we got a way we can get him. And they come up with a law that if anyone prays to any God except Darius for 30 days, he'll be cast into that den of lions. And what did they do? They appealed to the pride of Darius. They flattered him. He didn't know what he was doing. I don't think he knew what all he was getting into. And so they're like, oh, yeah, oh, king, just let him come to you. And he's like, well, that sounds pretty good. Let him come to me, right? And that's what rulers will do a lot of times. Isn't that what Hitler did in essence? He's like, either you do exactly what I say or you'll die. Isn't that what he did? And to think that couldn't happen with a ruler in America, I think it very easily could. Because don't some of these politicians sort of act like they like to be worshipped? A little bit, maybe. Right? Because that's the spirit of the Antichrist, isn't it? And it's coming on the scene. Isn't that what the mark of the beast is all about? Hey, he sets himself up as God and says, if you don't worship me, it's off with your head. You're in trouble. And there's going to be millions, most of this earth, are going to give in to that. To their destruction. And that's where we got to be careful, right? That's what we're seeing here with Daniel. He's not going to bow that knee like that. 
So that brings us to the second point here, the second secret of his success, and we've talked about it. It is his prayer life. And the thing, the very thing the rulers are going to use against him to bring him down was the key to his success. And so we read that when Daniel heard that decree, when he heard that they passed that law, that you can't petition any god or man except a king, you know what he did? He just went home and did what he'd been doing for 70 years. That's what he did. Look at verse 10. It says, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. He went home, fell on his knees, and prayed three times a day to God. And you know what you get from that? You don't get the impression that he panicked. It doesn't say he went home and prayed all day fervently, does it? Because, look, he was a busy man. He still was, and he still had responsibilities, right? One thing I want to say in talking about prayer, we don't have to get on this thing feeling like if we don't spend three, four, five, eight hours a day in prayer, we're somehow not seeking God's face. We got jobs to do. God doesn't expect that. But Daniel is three times a day seeking the Lord, doing what he had done every day. I don't get the impression from this that he's showing off. You know, his window was open towards Jerusalem, but if you understand, it's not like we're opening up our front door so the whole neighborhood could hear us pray. Those windows back then in those buildings were way up high. He's up high. He's not doing this for show, but he's doing what he had done every day. And so only somebody spying on him is going to know what he was doing, and that's the way these guys were. And he also, you know, a lot of people will think, well, because he signed the edict, Daniel decides, well, man, I'm just going to be in the king's face. I'm just going to thumb my nose at him. No, that's not what he's doing. He's not thumbing his nose at the king. That's not it. You know, Daniel hears that law, he hears that edict, and he knows what he's facing, and he goes home and he takes it all to the Lord. That's what he's doing. He doesn't protest the law, but he doesn't hide his light either, does he? Because this is Daniel's daily routine as I've said at the end of verse 10 look what it says as he did aforetime and look what it says down in verse 13 then answered they and said before the king that Daniel which is of the children of the captivity of Judah he regards not thee O king nor the decree that thou hast signed but he continually maketh his petition three times a day he just keeps on doing what he's been doing for all of his life. Now, a lot of people, if you say, hey, you should be praying every day, you should have set times to prayer, they want to say, well, that's legalism. That's not legalism. Legalism is when you're trying to make yourself acceptable to God somewhat. That's called a spiritual discipline that makes you useful to God. It's not legalistic. And here's what we need to see. The crisis that happened there with that law. It did not create a disciplined life for Daniel, did it? It revealed his disciplined life, didn't it? <laughs> and that's what crises do. Because if we think that when all of a sudden, hey, when things get bad, that's when I'm going to hit my knees, or that it's, it won't be like that. If you're not a person of prayer already, chances are a crisis isn't going to make you one. It might. But what we do in crisis, generally, is what we're doing every day. 
And so if you are a person and when things come your way, you take them to the Lord or every day you go before the Lord and take your day to the Lord, when a crisis comes, that's going to be your first reaction. But if you're not a person that does that, that won't be your first reaction. It's going to be you're looking around for help, looking around for somebody to talk to, somebody to get me out of this tr trouble. That just won't be your pattern. So prayer needs to be, what I'm saying, our daily practice, not just when we're in trouble. Because Jesus said this in Luke 18, Jesus spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now, he doesn't say always pray when you feel like it. He said men ought always to pray. And that word ought means it's necessary. Man, it's necessary that you pray. It's an obligation. It's a duty. It's a discipline that we have to have. Men ought always to pray. Not when it's convenient, not when we feel like it, but a fixed discipline. It needs to be a habit in our lives. And Daniel did that. I'm saying we're looking at that. We all like to talk about the great deliverance with the lions, but I'm talking now, this is what enabled him to have that faith. It was this excellent spirit, this integrity that he walked before God with. It's this prayer life that he had on a daily basis, seeking the Lord. I was heading down the other road on a message to preach today on seeking God in prayer. I'm saying that is where it is at for all of us. We have got to get back to where we are seeking God in prayer daily on a regular basis. And not just going through some routine, but seeking him for his manifest presence in our lives and in this church. That is where it's at. And that is all through the Bible. Seeking God. All through the revival scriptures. 2 Corinthians 7.14 If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves. Code word for fasting. And pray and seek my face. And turn from their wicked ways. That God says then I'll hear. And then I'll bless you. And that's what we all want isn't it? God's presence in our lives, God's blessings in our lives. And Daniel did that. Here's where people miss it with prayer. I can guarantee you with Daniel that every day he got on his knees in morning, noon, and night, it wasn't the glory came down and I can't hardly stand it, Lord. It wasn't like that. I guarantee it. There was times it probably felt dry for him. He's praying by faith, so to speak. There's times he's just pouring out his heart to the Lord. It doesn't have to be this great experience. And so he's just in the habit of doing it. I mean, people that are athletes and musicians, just think about that. Think about the way we do our everyday lives. If you just practice when you feel like it, the good ones will never be good. You'll never be any good at all. Michael Jordan just decided to shoot every now and then or every other day. He'd have never been Michael Jordan. And Daniel prayed every day. That was his life. So he would have been familiar with the Psalms. Psalm 5 says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For unto thee will I pray. My voice shall you hear in the morning. O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. Every day, starting your prayer, dedicating it to God. Telling him the things you need. Asking him to deliver you from the evil one that's out to do you in. And then he says, you'll look up. You look up to see God's faithfulness throughout that day. That's what he'll do for us. Psalm 55 says this. As for me, I will call upon God and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon will I pray 
and cry aloud, and he shall hear my prayer. I think Daniel knew those psalms. And I think he put those psalms into practice. Consistent daily prayer, I think, is what enabled him to live faithfully and have the power. Listen to what Andrew Murray says. Andrew Murray knew a thing or two about prayer. He's a very godly man, if you ever read his biography. But he says this, Many Christians backslide. They are unable to stand against the temptations of the world or of their old nature. They strive to do their best to fight against sin and to serve God, but they have no strength. And listen to what he says. They have never really grasped the secret. The Lord Jesus will every day from heaven continue his work in me, but on one condition. The soul must give him time each day to impart his love and his grace. Time alone with the Lord, Jesus, is the indispensable condition of growth and power. And we all know that, and I'm saying it's hard for all of us. This isn't a condemnation trying to make you feel guilty message. It's hard for all of us. All of us have things to do. All of us are busy. The devil's fighting all of us to get us from our knees, right? We all understand that. But what I'm just trying to say is we need to see if we want to be a person like Daniel, we have got to overcome all of that and purpose in our hearts. That's what it says in chapter 1. Daniel and those three Hebrew boys, they made it for 70 years through there because it says they purposed in their heart. So people that are runners and track people, they purpose in their heart, this is what I'm doing this week. And nothing's going to get in the way of it. And that's what happens. Otherwise, something's always going to get in the way with it. And that's what we have to do with prayer. We have to make it that we're not too busy. Because here's the other thing. Who could be busier than Daniel, the top dog in the, the world's government at the time? That man had to be busy, but yet he took time. So a lot of you know about Corey Ten Boom, the hiding place. She's a nice lady. She had to be a very sweet person to talk to. And here's what Corey Ten Boom said. Listen, she says, don't pray when you feel like it. Have an appointment with the Lord and keep it. A man is powerful on his knees. I thought that was good. And if she was up here saying it, you all would be like, oh, that's nice, Sister Tender. <laughs> she says, don't pray when you feel like it. Have an appointment with the Lord and keep it. A man is powerful on his knees. And listen, don't we have appointments for everything else we do? Sports practice, getting your hair cut, workouts, lunch, dinner, breakfast. And we make sure we make all of those, don't we? And how much more our time with the Lord, right? All of us need to hear that. And so the third thing I see in Daniel's life, that the success he had is because he served God continually. And the king recognized that. Look at verse 16, Daniel 6. Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. And now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest, continually he will deliver thee and look over in verse 20 and when he came to the den he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel and the king spake and said to Daniel O Daniel servant of the living God is thy God he says it again whom you serve continually able to deliver thee from the lions and so one way he continually served the Lord I've just talked about it is his prayers isn't it that is one way he served the Lord and everyone knew that Daniel, all these people, that is the one thing they knew about this man, that he was a man of prayer. And people tend to find that out when you're that way, don't they? 
You know, John Knox, the great reformer, Mary, Queen of Scots, said of him, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. And why would she say that? She feared him more than any army that could come against her country. Because she and most of Scotland that he affected, they knew that that man, you read stuff about him, he wrestled with God and prevailed. And they feared his prayers. He got results. And don't people, I think it's that way, it's been that way in our church. People, you kind of tend to know somebody that if you ask them to pray for something, somebody that will, and they're not just going to say they will and they won't. We tend to know who those people are, I think, don't we? It should be all of us be willing to do that. And I know a lot of people are. But that's one way you serve the Lord is through prayers. And praying, it seems like, man, I ought to be out there witnessing. I ought to be doing, you know, reading. My, I ought to be doing something other than just prayer, right? But Luke 2, Anna the prophetess. Why is it all these old people are prayer warriors, right? She's 84-year-old widow, lived in the temple. And it said this about her. She served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And so that's what they're seeing with Daniel. You serve your God continually. Anna the prophetess, she served God continually night and day in the temple. And everybody knew it. And so Darius says it twice to Daniel. The God whom you continually serve, and I think it was mainly by his prayer, but it wasn't just his prayers. It was also his obedient life. So we talked about this verse last week. I'll read it again. Ezekiel 14. Ezekiel says this, Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, talking about Jerusalem before it was destroyed, though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness saith the Lord God. So he was a righteous man, a holy man, an obedient man. And Daniel, like Job and Noah, those guys lived to an old age, living their lives in obedience to God. All three faithful old men dedicated to God. And do we think God doesn't take that into account when we're living faithful, obedient lives? Listen to what he says. For God, in Hebrews, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have showed toward his name. None of that's in vain. Not unrighteous to forget it. So I don't know how many of you know, there was a man that lived way back, Polycarp. He was an old man, another old man, 86 years old. And he was probably the last surviving person to have known an apostle. And he was a disciple of John. And for that reason, he was greatly revered. And he was a teacher and a church leader. Well, <laughs> This is when the persecution starts up and Rome decides they're going to arrest him and burn him at the stake. And listen to how God blessed his servant. As he's being taken into the arena, a voice came from heaven that said, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. And nobody saw who spoke that, but all the brethren that were there saying they heard that voice come to him, God encouraging him, right? And so when the crowd sees that it's Polycarp come in here, all these Roman heathens, they said the place went into an uproar. And so the proconsul, when he comes before him, he says, are you really Polycarp? They couldn't believe. They tried to catch him several times and hadn't been able to. And when he heard he was, he's trying to persuade him to apostatize, trying to persuade him, saying, he says, look, have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent. He tells Polycarp, and just say down with the atheist. They considered him to be an atheist. 
And it's said that Polycarp looks around the crowd, and it's all these grim-faced heathens. He looks in the crowd, and he waves his hand, and he goes, down with the atheist. I mean, that wasn't exactly what the guy had in mind, but <laughs> down with the atheist. And that got that proconsul a little bit upset. He's like, swear, he says, reproach Christ. He says, just renounce Christ, and I will set you free. And here is the classic answer that Polycarp gave. I love this. Here's what he answers his proconsul. He says, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? What a testimony. And you know what? They proceeded to burn him at the stake right there. But it says at the end of his life that everyone remembered that witnessed that, remembered what had happened. And it says that he is even spoken of by the heathen in every place. What a testimony. What we can get from the end of that, Polycarp didn't wait to start serving the Lord until he was too old to sin. I mean, I used to think that when I'm 14, 15, 17. I used to think to myself, I know I'm going to hell, but, you know, when I get too old to enjoy it like I am now, I'm going to repent and get right with God. And, you know, by the grace of God, he says, hey, you're crazy. Tap me on the shoulder. You're playing spiritual suicide, which you're playing a Russian roulette. You don't know that you're going to make it to your 40, 45, or the next year, right? But Polycarp started serving the Lord when he was a young boy, just like with Daniel. And that's when the practice starts. That's when the discipline should start to carry you through your life. 86 years, Polycarp says, 86 years have I served him, and he's never done me wrong. And can't we all say that? That have served the Lord, he's never done us wrong. Like the brother said, he's still our healer. He still is. He's still our deliverer. So Daniel's threatened with the lion's den. If he doesn't compromise his convictions to obey God, and you know what he decided? He says, I'd rather be torn limb from limb than to deny my Lord. That's what he decided. He wasn't going to turn his back on God. And you know what I would say? The real battle was not in the lion's den. You know where Daniel faced his lions? At home on his knees. Because that's where the temptation would have been the strongest. Because that roaring lion would have been talking to him in his ear, telling him, look, you've got this tremendous position. You're the first president over this entire kingdom. Think of all the good you could do. You can help your people get back to Israel. And if you pray, you will be dead, eaten by lions, and all their hope will be shot. That's what the devil's saying in his ear. And he's probably saying, like, look, look, man, he's only saying it's only 30 days that you don't have to pray. You can just pray inside. God will understand. And that sounds reasonable, doesn't it? That's the way the devil talks to you. He sounds reasonable. But you know what would have happened? Daniel would have lost his testimony and his conscience. He'd have lost that. And one writer said this, the great miracle of grace in Daniel 6 is that Daniel the man of prayer, was able to go on praying. The great danger for Daniel wasn't being let down into the lion's den, but the temptation not to pray. That had done him in. And it said, he went on to say this, when he faced the lion's den, the danger had already been overcome. It's just like the Lord in the garden. It's just like the times when we have to go into the gardens where we're wrestling with the situation. Once we wrestle and deal with that and decide, though none go with me, I will follow, the battle's really over, isn't it? It really is. 
So Daniel went on his knees. He had to decide what meant more to him, his safety or his God. And Daniel decided he'd rather die than to deny his God. So he pays the consequences, right? They cast him into the lion's den, put a stone on the mouth of it, and seal it with the king's own seal. And guess what? Nobody ate that night. The king didn't eat, and neither did the lions. And it says in the morning, the king he didn't even bother eating breakfast. He didn't even go through the McDonald's drive-thru. He comes straight to that den. And it says he cries out in a lamentable voice. Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom you serve continually able to deliver thee from the lions? So who is this God whom Daniel serves? Darius had it right. What does he call him? The living God. That's what he says, isn't it? Look in verse 26. He says, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. And Darius got it right, didn't he? He says, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. And that's the God we serve. Isn't it? The living God. Paul wrote this. We therefore labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God. Uh, he says, I can labor. I can suffer reproach. I can go through all of what I go through because I know that I serve the living God. And he told the Thessalonians, he says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. And what does it mean to say you're serving the living God? What does it mean that inspection, the living God? When the Bible speaks of the living God, it is always in the context of God. He is actively involved in the affairs of men in this world. And so one of my favorite songs we sing, that psalm, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and so shall I be saved from mine enemies. Well, why can we confidently say that? Because I love the chorus. It was, because the Lord liveth. That's how we can sing that song. The Lord liveth and blessed be my rock. And let the God of my salvation be exalted. The living God. He's involved in our affairs. He really is. <laughs> so when the children of Israel were going to cross over the Jordan River, and Joshua tells them when you get to that river and you see those waters part in front of you, he says, hereby you shall know that the living God is among you. The living God is among us. And so when prayers are answered, when healings take place, when people are baptized in the Holy Spirit, when demons are cast out, what does that tell us? That the living God is amongst us. And that's why I'm saying we have got to get to where we're seeking that living God's presence to see his power manifested in us here. And that's what happens to Daniel. Look at his answer in verse 22 when he asked him, hey, did, did your God, the living God, was he able to deliver you? And he says, oh, my God, verse 22, has sent his angel and has shut the lion's mouths that they have not hurt me for as much as before him. Innocency was found in me and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt? And then was the king exceeding glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no manner of hurt was found upon him. Why? It says because he believed in his God. And so he was delivered for two reasons, wasn't he? Two reasons. The first one was he said, I was innocent before the Lord. My conscience was clear. And he says, I was also not guilty towards you, king. 
I didn't have these evil plans that they tried to make it out that I did have. And that's a key for us, isn't it? He says, I was innocent before the Lord and innocent before the world. And we have got to have a clear conscience if we want to know that God is going to answer our prayer, don't we? Because that's what it says in 1 John 3, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God and whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. So number one, he had a clear conscience. He said, no guilt. I was innocent. And the second thing it says, he trusted in God. The end of verse 23, because he believed in his God. Because listen, the king couldn't deliver Daniel, could he? He's trusting in him. Boy, he put his trust in the wrong place. He's only a man that had been bound by his own decree, and he was powerless to stop those lions from devouring Daniel. He liked Daniel. He felt terrible for the whole thing happening, didn't he? He really liked him. But Daniel, what? He couldn't even trust in a king that liked him. That ought to tell us something, right? You put confidence in man, and man can let you down. You know, a song we used to sing, another one I really liked that we used to sing, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Do we still believe that? I believe that. It is better to trust in the Lord, and Daniel would have said this, than to put confidence in princes. Well, that prince just did him wrong. Had him thrown down that line. Couldn't help him out. But all God could, better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes because we can always trust in God's deliverance, can't we? Even when man fails us. You know, Paul wrote this to Timothy. At my first answer, no man stood with me. Everybody left me. Probably people he trusted in, thought were his friends. He said, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. He says, but notwithstanding, here's what we can know. He says, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear. And Paul said this. He might have been thinking of Daniel. He says, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And he says, the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom. Wow, what a testimony, eh? With Paul and Daniel. Daniel says, my God has sent his angel and has shut the lion's mouths that they have not hurt me. All because Daniel was willing to stay faithful to his God before a hostile crowd. So God shut the lion's mouth who came in the form of men. And I think that's what Paul was talking about for Daniel, didn't he? He shut their mouths. In fact, they ended up being the lion's food instead of Daniel with their wives and children. Wow, that's judgment on there. Not good to oppose God and his people, right? He stopped those lions' mouths. He stopped the literal lions' mouths. We read that. The angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, appeared and did it himself. What an experience. I mean, that had to be terrifying to be first let down into those lions. I mean, those things had to be vicious, bad breath, all of that stuff. And he's let down in there. I mean, that had to be terrifying. And then who comes? In that experience, who would want that? But th that is where he met the Lord Jesus Christ. The angel of the Lord came and he saw what happened. He shut their mouths that no hurt happened to him. And he also shut the roaring lion's mouth, Satan, that would have been talking in his ear. All of those lion's mouths were shut for Daniel. Truly a man of excellent spirit. Why? Because he was willing to take a stand. 
which is what God will ask us to do probably tomorrow or sometime this week. We'll get our chance. And he took a stand against 120 princes of Persia. And that's the question. Are we willing to be that one person in the workplace, at school, at home, who stands alone for God? Do we want to be people of extraordinary spirits before our Lord? And I would say this. We stand, this church stands on the shoulders of the Daniels that have gone before us, and specifically one. And I'll say, I was thinking about this. You know, Brother Hamilton lost a lot of friends he had in ministry. And was it because he was unfriendly? He's a mean person? We all know that wasn't the case, right? Why was that? Because he says, I've got convictions. And I'm sure he was nice about it. But I got convictions that I just can't bend on. And because of that, he had to watch a person after person he'd talk about walk away from him. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, as a minister, he says, I'm the loneliest man in the world when he grew old. And I'm sure Brother Hamilton probably felt that way a lot of times. But you know what? Another time we're talking about standing on the shoulders of Daniel and an example we can follow. How about this time? He goes in front of the Kentucky General Assembly and testifies about how God has been his healer. The Lord Jesus Christ has been his healer for all these years and what he did for his family. Now, you think that would be easy? I don't think so. I think that would be the equivalent of standing up to 120 princes. Nobody probably came up and asked him for his autograph when he was done with that, right? And I'd say that took an excellent spirit. And there's the example that's before us. We can learn from in the Bible and lived right before us. We have no greater example of a man that stood alone in the face of great adversity and opposition of sinners than our Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's the main one. And he faced literal lions in the wilderness, I'm sure, and spiritual lions on our behalf, just for our sake. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to come down here just so we would have the power to overcome. I'd say this, let's trust him for the power of his spirit to walk in his steps to have that godly courage. The same courage he gave Daniel. Same courage he gave Brother Hamilton. Same courage he gave Polycarp. And as the song says, let's dare to be a Daniel. Let's dare to pray like Daniel prayed daily, boldly, and faithfully. And let's dare to have a commitment that would rather die than to deny our Lord. Amen? Dare to be a Daniel, the song goes. Dare to stand alone. Dare to have a purpose firm and dare to make it known. It's a great song. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this example you've given us in the life of Daniel and, and the great deliverance that you granted him and that steadfast, excellent spirit that you worked in his life, Lord, and also the example you've given us as a man of prayer, and that you answered his prayers. And Lord, especially we ask that you'll do that in our lives so that you can get the glory as you got the glory at the end of Daniel's life with that decree that was written, that that can be said for all of us. We are people of excellent spirits, and our lives gave glory to God. I ask that you'll do that for us. And give us that grace and courage and make us all people of prayer that seek your face and your presence. That we may stand in these last days 
and having done all to stand against the wiles of the devil which are coming our way. And I thank you that you'll do that for us as a church here. And we receive it in Jesus' name. Amen.